Well, good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the priests here at the Church of the Cross, and it's a joy to be with you all today. We got a long and challenging scripture reading for us. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied. Seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him 10,000 talents. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him, and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Please be patient with me. I will pay it. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. So when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who had been forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. How many times? How many times should I forgive someone when they sin against me? You know, there's some sermons whenever you walk out the door, you're like, man, I'm really glad that the preacher preached that today. That was just for me. This is one of those sermons where you walk out saying, man, I really wish this one wasn't for me. (laughs) Because we're talking about something challenging. Forgiving others. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel. God offers us forgiveness through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When God forgives us, he remembers our wrongs no more. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Once we've been reconciled with God, he calls us to be people of forgiveness. That means letting go of grudges, seeking reconciliation, being people of peace. But I'll be honest, forgiving others is hard. We live in an age of perpetual offense. We are quick to be offended, quick to call foul, quick to judge, quick to become bitter. We allow even the small things in life to divide us. So I think many of us at some point or another are going to ask God the same question Peter does. What are the limits on forgiveness? How much wrong am I supposed to bear as a Christian? At the time of Jesus, the Jewish tradition was to forgive someone three times. Like, three strikes, you're out of here. Like, you're out of my life. I'm not having anything to do with you anymore. 
So Peter thinks, I'm being outrageously generous by offering to forgive someone seven times. But then Jesus blows this out of the water. He says, no, not seven times. How about 70 times seven times? Peter had to be amazed. Now, this was likely pretty difficult math for a, a fisherman, but I can see him counting on his fingers here. And he's, okay, 490 times. But Jesus clarifies that he's not instructing us to keep a careful tally of wrongs and to cease forgiving once we get to 491, right? So he illustrates his point with a story. This is a parable where there's a king who has a subject who owes him a huge amount of money. In Greek, it says that his debt is 10,000 talents. This is an absurd amount of money. And I don't know about you, but I spend money in dollars, not in talents. And so I did some conversion of math and things, and it turns out that 10,000 talents is the equivalent of $21 trillion. This man was running a deficit and spending money like he's the United States government. <laughs> the Jesus listeners would have clearly understood that it is impossible to repay the debt. So the king says, listen, your debt is so great, there is nothing you can do to repay it. So it's going to cost your freedom. Everything you own will be sold. You're going to lose your family, and you're going to be a slave to this debt. The burden is so great, it affects everything about your life. And there's nothing you can do about it. So the man begs for forgiveness. Please be patient with me. I will pay it. But repayment of the debt was impossible. In light of this impossibility, it says the master was filled with pity. He released him and forgave his debt. He didn't say, come back and pay what you can later. He said, repayment is impossible so I will take the burden of your debt on myself. You are forgiven. Wow. You would think that this radical act of forgiveness would inspire the servants to go into the world and to do likewise. But that's not what happens. It says immediately he hunts down a man who owes him some money. And it says 100 denarii. Again, I don't spend money in denarii. But this is still a sizable amount of money in today's money. This is like $20,000, right? So this is a sizable debt that he owes. And it says he grabs the man by the throat and says, you will repay me now. And the guy says, listen, I, I will repay it, but I can't do it right now. And so he takes the man and he throws him into prison and says, you're going to suffer until your debt is repaid. The king finds out about this act of injustice, and he brings the original debtor back. He says, despite the mercy I showed you, you failed to show mercy to others. So the forgiveness that had been given is rescinded. He is taken off to prison until his debt is paid for, but with this absurd amount that he owed, it would take an eternity to pay it off. So this means that this man was lost forever. So the meaning of this parable, I think, is clear. We are the debtors in this story. 
We owe an unimaginable debt because of the accumulation of life's sin. We are separated from God, and it is impossible for us to make things right. But whenever you and I plead to God for help, whenever we have faith in Jesus Christ to save us, we believe that he takes the burden of our debts on himself, and we are freed from the terrible burden of sin. But here's the real challenge. An encounter with God's grace, having true saving faith in Jesus Christ, should radically transform our hearts. What is the the Lord's prayer? Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who, right? We forgive our debtors. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, not once, not three times, not seven times. Forgiveness beyond measure. Unforgiveness is a prison that chains our souls, it prevents our healing, and it separates us from God's grace. The first key that I'm going to share today to grow and be people of forgiveness is we have to learn to constantly forgive the small things in life. You know, we face small offenses every day. Someone cuts us off in the grocery store. Someone aggravates us while driving. Someone is rude. Someone says something offensive or they're selfish. As you go through life, it will seem as though your spouse and coworkers specialize in offending you in all the small ways. But here's the truth. There is never a win in living offended. I have never found myself saying, I am so much better because I am bitter. I'm having a great day because I'm offended over something that doesn't matter. My marriage is stronger because I'm holding a grudge. Not how it works. You see, friends, our lives are too short and our callings are too great to be offended by something small. Proverbs offers us some wisdom on this issue. It says, a wise person controls their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. It also says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of wrongs. You know, in every interaction that we have with someone, there is a gap between what they do and how we respond. That gap may only be a split second, but in that moment, we do a couple things. We, we interpret what they did, and then we decide how we're going to respond to it. Our response can either stir up strife, or cover a wrong. We can choose to be offended, or we can choose to have forgiveness. We can choose to be bitter, or we can choose to have sympathy. We can choose judgment, or we can choose mercy. We must learn to carefully choose what we put in the gap between what other people do and how we respond. If someone says something rude, we can immediately return something back in return. You could hold a grudge against them. You could tell them, you could tell others how much you don't like this person anymore. Or you could just choose to forgive and move on. You know, I'm constantly, I found myself constantly amazed at the capacity of little children to forgive each other. Right? I walk through uh, the hallways here at Cross, 
and I'll see the early education, the babies, you know, the three, the four-year-olds, of whom I have one, right? And, and they'll be out there, and they'll be on the playground, and one will just get mad and shove them off of the playground, right? And, and just like a physical act of violence. And the teacher will go and say, you need to apologize. And they'll apologize. And then two minutes later, they're hugging each other and loving each other and, and acting as if nothing ever happened, right? They, they forgive immediately. I've, I've seen an illustration of this recently. My three-year-old Ezra is in a phase of life where his greatest heroes are the police and the firefighters. Every time he sees a police officer, he says, are they going to catch a bad guy? And whenever he sees a firefighter, he says, are they going to help someone? Well, one day, as we were traveling to school, Ezra saw that the, the police had a car pulled off the road Um, and and I'm assuming that they were speeding too fast on 278, and they were pulled off, and Ezra said, ah, look, they caught the bad guy. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I have premonitions of the future in my mind, and I'm going to say, someday that's going to be me sitting there. (laughs) And Ezra's going to be in the back seat. And so I started training Ezra. Well, the police help people too, right? He's just telling them to slow down, to drive a little bit slower. So he started, every time we saw the, the police with a, a car pulled over, he would say, oh, they're helping them, telling them to slow down. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Ezra was in the car, and the blue lights came on in the rearview mirror. <laughs> Thankfully, my wife was driving. You're welcome. <laughs> she gave me permission at 5.30 this morning to uh, tell that story. I'm thinking she may want to retract it now, but it's too late. But here's what's amazing. So immediately, you know, Ezra's like enthralled. The cop's right there. He's waving at him, and, and, and the, he goes to leave, and then Mommy's like, ugh. And Ezra says, it's okay, Mommy. Everyone makes mistakes. Precious. Ezra, in that moment, chose to fill the gap between something he saw and how he responded. What are you filling in the gaps of your interactions? Mm. You know, we have a spiritual enemy. The Bible calls him Satan, the devil. In Revelation, he has a different title. In Revelation chapter 12, it says his name is the accuser. And it says that he stands before God, accusing the saints day and night. Even now, Satan is trying to accuse you, saying, you are no good. You are not worthy. You don't deserve forgiveness. And Satan wants you to cooperate with his accusations. He is the accuser and wants you to accuse others. Accusations never give the benefit of the doubt. They assume the worst. They seek to condemn. They erode marriages. They split friendships. They dissolve trust. So it's no surprise that the enemy wants you to fill the gap with assumptions and accusations. But God wants you to fill the gap with love and forgiveness. You know, my my dear wife may say, hey, did you take out the trash? It's a simple question, but in my response, I, I will become indignant and judge and be angry like, what do you mean did I take out the trash? You must think I'm lazy. You must think I'm forgetful, right? I'm choosing to respond in a negative way. 
Whenever the reality is, she's just trying to remind me, and chances are I probably did forget. Someone doesn't respond to your text message. The devil would say, oh, they're not a good friend. They think, they think they're too good for anybody. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't accuse. Love offers forgiveness, even for the little things in life. Because let me tell you, friends, as we go through life, you're going to encounter these little things constantly, and you need to choose how you respond with love. And as we do that, that will prepare us for the moments in life where we need to elevate our forgiveness from something small to something big. You know, I'm not going to limit my, what I'm talking about with the big things in life because I don't want to limit it. I, I, you know exactly the big things that you're facing right now that God is calling you to forgive. Forgiveness is not just a spiritual practice. It is well-researched by psychologists and mental health experts. Forgiveness is a necessary step in finding healing and wholeness. It means letting go of the resentments that keep us tied to the wrong committed against us. It means healing and moving forward with life without anger, without hurt, without unproductive remembrance. Forgiveness is not a magic eraser that simply removes the painful memories. Forgiveness is not remaining in a situation that continues a cycle of abuse. But forgiveness is the first first step toward finding healing that our hearts so desperately need. When we don't forgive, we give someone and some painful moment a place in our hearts that they do not deserve. Unforgiveness breeds bitterness, resentment, and hatred. Those things are total poison to our souls. But forgiveness frees our hearts, renews our minds, and fulfills the law of Christ. I think as I was praying and studying, I think I've identified two types of forgiveness. You have forgiveness that restores and forgiveness that removes. Forgiveness that restores, it restores the relationship with the person. For this type of forgiveness to work, you have to have repentance from the person that did the offending, right? Repentance is where the offending person comes to you and says, listen, I've messed up. I am sorry, and I am going to change. And, and then they have fruit that they are walking a path of transformation, Forgiveness does not mean that the relationship goes back to normal or that you trust them immediately, but it does mean that you seek to mend the relationship as you lay down the pain of the, fast, the past offense. So it's a, it's a forgiveness that restores. There's also forgiveness that removes. This is where relationship is impossible or undesirable. In a case of an abusive relationship or moments where Repentance, it's just not going to happen. You still are called to forgive them. Forgiveness of this type is not for the other person. Forgiveness, in this case, is for you. It's for us. Unforgiveness chains us to another person who has hurt us. Forgiveness breaks the chain. I know of no other story 
that embodies this kind of forgiveness better than what happened at a small Amish community on October 2nd, 2006. The unthinkable happened. There was a shooting at a small one-roomed schoolhouse. Five children were killed, and then the person killed himself. This was a profoundly evil, unspeakable crime. But what is amazing is how the Amish community responded. When the family of the man had a private funeral service, they didn't advertise it. They, they were filled with shame, but they showed up, and there were 40 Amish men and women there to offer condolences and to offer forgiveness. And as if that wasn't enough, the Amish community raised money to give to the, the widow and her children of the man. Mm. The world was shocked by these acts of forgiveness. It was so unnatural that the mainstream media and other people, they accused the Amish of not having feelings. They said they got over this too easy. But the Amish didn't get over it too easily or too quickly. Instead, they realized something significant. They realized that, that forgiving someone makes it easier to find the healing that we need whenever we are wronged. This type of transformation, this kind of forgiveness, it is not natural. It only comes whenever we are totally dependent upon our Heavenly Father. He enables us to transcend human wisdom concerning how we would normally deal with those who hurt us, and He helps us forgive them. As we learn to forgive the little things and then the big things, we can move on to what is sometimes the hardest type of forgiveness to, to give, and that is forgiving yourself. We tend to be our own worst critics. We hold on to failures long after others have forgotten them. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. But here's a powerful message. Jesus died because he knew that we would make mistakes. He knew that we weren't perfect and that perfection was not possible. Jesus died for imperfect, messed up, crazy people like me and like you. Your guilt, your mistakes have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And whenever Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't pick that guilt back up. He left it there. And if Jesus has forgiven you, we got to learn how to forgive ourselves. Because only then, as we walk in forgiveness of ourselves, can we start having peace and hope and, and, and trust of Jesus to, that tomorrow will be better than today. In the Anglican tradition, we have a powerful reminder of this forgiveness every Sunday in our liturgical services. In our liturgical services, we have a, a confession that we do. We say, listen, Lord, we confess that we messed up. I've messed up and sinned in what I've thought, in what I did, in my words. I've, I've sinned in what I've done, and I've sinned in what I've left undone. So please forgive me. And, and it's, this is so important. Repentance is one thing, but sometimes we need to hear the voice of Jesus coming to us to say, you are forgiven. And so written into our liturgy, we have something called an absolution. The priest stands up and says, he says this message, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, 
who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who sincerely repent and with true faith turn to him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We are so bad at forgiving ourselves. Sometimes we need someone to stand up in front of us and look us eyeball to eyeball to say, in the name of Jesus, Jesus has forgiven you. And that confirmation, that affirmation can help us walk in the process of forgiving ourselves. In the, in the Book of Common Prayer, whenever it was first written, they included, after the absolution, a, a list of scriptures to remind us that we're forgiven, and they're called the comfortable words because they're, they're, they're comforting words to our distressed souls. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Coming to the table to receive communion is, is really the, the, the highlight of Christian worship. Because whenever we come to the table and, and we receive the bread and the wine, we are reminded of, of what that is symbolizing, right? That 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross for you for me, for the mistakes we've made. He is the one that has taken this unimaginable debt, this weight that we cannot bear. He's taken it on himself. But part of this gospel is saying, Jesus looks at us and says, go and do likewise. Forgive others. Be free. Friends, our calling is too great. Our time is too short to let grievances separate us from others. So may we go into the world offering forgiveness. May we come to this table today and receive it and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for making me new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would come and be with us today, that you would create in us a new heart. I pray, God, that you would help us receive the forgiveness that you so graciously offer us, that, that we would go into the world also and forgive those who have hurt us. Lord, we pray all of this through Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.